Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. This week is part two to last week's part one. So I would recommend jumping back and listening to last week's episode before this week's, but I don't think you have to listen to them in that order because they are addressing different though related topics. I would say that last week's and this week's episodes are more like opposing sides of the same coin. So in my opinion it is probably better to listen to last week's first but whichever way works because this one isn't setting too much on a foundation built last week. Last week was episode 21, and it was asking the question, can you be rich and a Christian? This week we are looking at a related question, does the Bible condemn riches? Does the Bible condemn riches? Now those may sound like more or less the same question worded different ways. But when you listen to both episodes, last week's episode and this week's episode, you will see that the way I go about answering them is quite different and, like I said before, a lot like opposing sides of the same coin. But before we jump into all that, let's take care of some housekeeping items. Please make sure to give a like or heart to this episode on whatever podcast catcher you are using. Subscribe to the feed and turn on the auto-download so that you don't miss any new episodes. And please tell your friends about the podcast. And if you have any questions, please reach out to me. I just answered some questions that people had sent to me via PM on Instagram a few days ago. Actually, most of those questions were uh, a couple weeks old, if not further, if not further back than that. So I need to remember to pay attention to the message requests on Instagram, not just the ones that come up in the main feed. And I promise to do better on that so I can answer all of y'all's questions as quickly as possible. But do not go on too much of a tangent. Please PM Theana Money or me personally on any of the social media profiles or email theanamoney at gmail.com. I welcome your questions or your episode ideas. And to steal a line from my friend Andrew Rappaport, I will answer every single question. But also, I don't know is a valid answer to any question. As long as I actually don't know, then otherwise it's lying if I know the answer and I say I don't know. But anyways, last week we looked at whether or not you can be rich and a Christian. We looked at some case examples of righteous rich people in scripture and a few verses from Proverbs that positively speak of riches. However, I don't want to just leave, I don't want to just leave it at positive examples and be done. 
There are passages in scripture that appear to be condemnations of riches, and I do not want to lead anyone to think that scripture contradicts itself, having some passages against riches and some in favor of them. Remember that we as Christians believe in the inerrancy of scripture. Since God cannot err, scripture, as his word, also cannot err. If you see passages in scripture that appear to contradict each other, they don't. And it is your lack of understanding that makes it appear as if they do. Now, please don't get mad at me for saying that. We are finite. God is infinite and God is the author of scripture. I get things wrong in scripture as well, just like all of us do this side of glory. Likely, you are just misreading one or both passages if you think these passages contradict each other, or you have not taken something into account, such as one gospel only talking about one blind man and another mentioning two because one gospel author focused on the primary speaker of the two and the other wanted to give the exact number of blind men. God didn't contradict himself. The various gospel authors just had differing emphases while explaining the same story. And focusing on one aspect of a true account over another doesn't make the account any less true. That tangent on the reliability of scripture aside, let's dive into the topic at hand and why scripture does not contradict itself when some passages seem to praise riches and others condemn them. I'm going to start by presenting the other side of the argument in such a way that it almost looks like the Bible contradicts itself, then I will explain how it actually doesn't do that. I'm doing it this way because I want the solution to this issue, which will be a similar principle to the other supposed Bible contradictions, to have a lot of weight by making the problem big before revealing the solution, which is kind of like how God made Adam name all the animals before giving him Eve to make Adam realize that there is no female human like there are males and females of all the animals, thus making Adam see his issue before giving him the solution to it. So last week I started with the case examples of specific people in scripture who were righteous and rich. Let's now look at specific examples of people who were rich and wicked that way, I present the other side in the same manner that I presented last week. So first, let's look at who is perhaps the first example in many people's minds, the rich young ruler. This interaction is in all three of the synoptic gospels, but I'm going to read out of Luke because that is the one that gives us the title, rich young ruler. Of the three, I believe it's the only one that specifically calls him a ruler. So let's look at Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18 and continuing through verse 27. Luke 18, verses 18 through 27. And a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And side note, Jesus is not saying that he's not God here. Although a lot of Muslims and even other cultists like to go to this passage, but we're not going to dive into that right now. 
Continuing on in verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept for my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. The line of thinking here in the thought that the Bible condemns all wealth is that Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell all of his property and give the proceeds to the poor and that if the young man does this, then he could become a believer. Therefore, Jesus is saying that riches are a bad thing and that if a rich man wants to become a Christian, he has to sell off his vast wealth and give it to the poor first. Then, to top it all off, Jesus says that it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a poor man to do so. In other words, Jesus is saying that it is much more difficult for a rich person to believe the gospel, for a rich person to become a Christian, than it is for a poor man to become a believer. Except, that's pretty much all wrong. There are a lot of misunderstandings about this passage and what I just said. So let's tackle them. We'll do the last one first because it is the easiest to explain and it is a common statement. Jesus does not say here that it is harder for the rich to get saved than it is for the poor. There is simply no comparison like that made in the passage. Look at verse 25. Jesus doesn't say that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, but that this isn't true for a poor man. In fact, in the next verse, the disciples broaden Jesus' statement when they ask him, then who can be saved in light of what he just said? Now, the assumption behind their question might have been that all rich people are especially blessed by God to have such riches. And if they can't enter the kingdom of God with all their blessings, then who can? But either way, the point stands that they broadened the statement to more than just the rich people. Jesus then says that what is impossible with man is possible with God, with the context being who can be saved. So in these few verses, Jesus does not say that it is easier for the poor to be saved than the rich. He says that it is hard for the rich to be saved because he has just finished an interaction with a rich man who wouldn't believe, not because the rich are particularly evil or something like that. So this is in fact a passage about total depravity, the doctrine that humans will not on their own reach out to God in faith unless God first reaches out to them and regenerates them. 
Now, can riches be a stumbling block to the gospel for the rich unbeliever because he trusts in them to the point that he refuses to trust in God? Sure. Just like any other thing we find security in can do that, such as intelligence. Unbelieving mankind will try to find anything to use as an excuse to not place faith in the gospel. That's why we have concepts like the doctrine of total depravity. So some rich people might be more hard-hearted to the gospel because of their riches, but Jesus is in no way making that as a blanket statement about all rich people in this passage. Now, as to how Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell his property and give it to the poor, Jesus is not giving a blanket statement for all rich people who wish to be saved here, but rather to this particular person and for particular reasons. This is related to the entire premise of the book, The Makers vs. the Takers by Jerry Bowyer, and I hope to have him on sometime to talk about his wonderful book. Without giving away too much of the book, this man was a ruler and was rich, despite being so young, because he was politically connected and he likely inherited some of his wealth and property. His riches were not obtained through the free market, but through coercion and political connections. Things that hurt the poor to the benefit of the rulers. In modern terminology, his riches were obtained from crony capitalism, not free market capitalism. So Jesus was not blanketly condemning riches. After all, to my knowledge, and I've read all four of the Gospels quite a few times, he never condemned riches in the more free market Galilee, despite Galilee having several rich people. But he did so close to Jerusalem when the people confronted were rich through coercion and or political connections such as with the rich young ruler in question here. So Jesus is not condemning vast wealth, just vast wealth gathered in a sinful manner. Also, Jesus knows that in a generation Jerusalem will be destroyed, and he will soon prophesy about that. So his command to this man was also a future blessing, as the rich young ruler would have to flee his land in Judea to save his own life in 40 years if he were to heed Jesus' prophetic warnings and save his life when the Roman armies came to destroy the city. Let's look at another case example, Zacchaeus, the wee little man. This one comes from just the next chapter over from where we just were. We're right here going to be looking at Luke 19 verses one through 10. So let's read those verses. And he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on before and climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, uh, I'm sorry, it says, in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down 
and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have extorted anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was wealthy and a wicked man, but when he became a Christian, he repaid back what he had stolen. Actually, he repaid back fourfold and gave half of his remaining possessions to the poor. Or perhaps half of his possessions to the poor before he repaid because that statement came first in the verse. Then Jesus said that salvation came to this house. Not before he said he was giving all that money away. Jesus said it after in the next verse. So the argument might go that this passage shows that riches are wrong because Zacchaeus gave up his vast wealth before Jesus said that he was saved. But wait a minute. Zacchaeus acquired that wealth in a sinful manner by theft via overtaxation. He, as a tax collector, was working with the unjust Roman rulers and could easily get rich by telling people that they owed more in taxes than they really did. Who was going to argue with an official acting on behalf of Rome, especially when you regularly see or hear about crucifixions, some of them likely because of not paying taxes. Thus, Zacchaeus broke at least two of the Ten Commandments in order to get his riches, lying and stealing. Zacchaeus was showing his repentance over his sin by repaying what he stole in accordance with the Old Testament law and by giving half of his wealth to the poor. He was showing repentance over just how unjustly and sinfully his wealth was acquired. Just like with the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus' issue was not wealth in and of itself, but how he acquired his wealth. And also, just like with the rich young ruler, you should go read the makers versus the takers to learn more about this subject. Let's look at one more case example before we move on to other types of passages in scripture. This time we are not looking at a specific person, but a group of people described in James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, cry, howling over your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. You have stored up such treasures in the last days. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, that which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcries of those who did the harvesting have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have lived in self-indulgence. 
You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Once again, we see a passage used to condemn riches. But does it condemn all riches or only a certain type of riches? Perhaps if you stopped at verse 2 or 3, you could get that idea. But that would not be good Bible interpretation to stop halfway through a passage and then start making application as if we had read the whole thing. Look at verse 4. These rich were refusing to pay their laborers. Look at verse 5. These rich were living in self-indulgence instead of godly self-discipline. Look at verse 6. These rich were condemning and murdering righteous men, likely by taking them to court on bogus charges. This is not a condemnation of all rich people, but only on evil rich people. This is a condemnation on the rich person who abuses the poor because his riches give him power. This is a condemnation of the rich person who relies on his riches instead of on God. This passage doesn't condemn the godly Christian businessman who, thanks to his God-given abilities and diligence, became quite wealthy through the business he created and uses that wealth to honor God and bless others rather than harm them. Let's look at one last passage before we draw conclusions and summarize what we have learned. This is another one that people like to throw out there. The verse that says the love of money is the root of all evil. Actually, that verse isn't found in scripture. Except if you use translations that get 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 wrong. A more accurate rendering of the Greek is, A love of money is a root of all kinds of evil or all sorts of evil. Not all sin is rooted in a sinful love of money. Many sins, such as lust, have money nowhere in the equation. But anyways, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 in the LSB, and then see what we can learn from this passage and whether or not it condemns all riches or only a certain kind of riches. So, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptations and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by aspiring to it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Loving money too much, idolizing money, putting the acquiring of wealth first in your life, not to make ends meet or provide for your family, but because you want to get as many zeros as possible in your bank account, that is wrong and sinful. This evil love of money this glorification of money, this making a God out of money is a root of all sorts of evil. You can only serve one master, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And if money is your master, then God isn't. This is evil and wrong and sinful to idolize money. 
But that doesn't mean that just having a lot of wealth is evil in and of itself. Paul here is only addressing those who are sinful in their desire for wealth, not any and every rich individual. In other words, not everyone who is rich idolizes money. Now that we have looked at several passages commonly cited in the claim that the Bible condemns riches, let's look back at the original question, the question that is the title of this episode. Does the Bible condemn riches? And what is the answer? It depends. It depends. Does the Bible condemn all riches? No. Does the Bible condemn some riches? Yes. So what principle can we draw from Scripture to know what riches it condemns and what it doesn't condemn? The Bible only condemns ill-gotten wealth or wealth used to abuse others. If you obtained your wealth not by being productive and producing things that others were willing to pay you for, but by taking it from the poor without them willingly buying what you were selling, in other words, by coercing it from them, or you got your wealth from political connections, then the Bible condemns your riches because they were gained sinfully. If you gained your riches in an honest and just manner, but then used your vast wealth to abuse others, then the Bible condemns your riches. But if you gained your wealth honestly and fairly by being good at something people are willing to pay money for, and once you had the wealth, you use it to the glory of God, Scripture has no condemnation on your riches. So we have a principle here. Riches in and of themselves are not evil, but how they are acquired and how they are used, that can be evil if used improperly. This can be an important principle for many aspects of Bible interpretation and application. There are things that used rightly are good and the blessings of God, but used wrongly, they are sinful and evil. We are to use the gifts to the glory of the giver, not to glorify ourself, the receiver of the gift. The gifts should just point us right back to the giver, and we should just give the gifts back to the giver and how we steward them. Remember last week when I said that the answer to harmonizing these passages together was hinted at in that episode? Here is where it comes to play. Let's look at Proverbs 10.22 again, and just like last time, from the Legacy Standard Bible. It reads, It is the blessing of Yahweh that makes rich, and he adds no pain with it. What did I say about this passage last week? God's blessing makes one rich, and he adds no pain with it. So, if the vast wealth comes with pain, then it was not a blessing of God. In other words, not all riches are blessings from God, and whether or not they bring pain is one indicator of that. The undisciplined man who somehow acquires vast wealth, although if he is undisciplined, his wealth was probably acquired from inheritance or the lottery, because great self-discipline is typically necessary to do well in business. If that man squanders his wealth 
so that his latter end is worse than the first. He has great pain with his wealth, and it was actually a judgment from God, not a blessing. Compare that situation with the intelligent, honest, diligent Christian businessman who honors God with his wealth, both in how he obtains it and how he uses it once he has it. He is one who is blessed by God and his riches, and God adds no pain with that man's riches. The man who obtains his wealth via sinful avenues, and then once he has the wealth, he uses it to oppress the poor, that man's wealth is not a blessing from God, and he should not be surprised if God allows pain to be added with it. To summarize this whole episode, to give you a TLDR, if you want to explain the content of this episode to someone in only a minute or two. The Bible condemns riches that are gained sinfully and or used to harm others once they have been gained. Examples of that are wealth gained from unjust overtaxation, unjust political connections that have quite nice payoffs, or theft. But great wealth can be gained in a fair and honest way such as providing a good or service that benefits the consumer, so a lot of people are able and willing to purchase that good or service. This more free market concept is not condemned in Scripture, and an example of that is how Jesus has no qualms about condemning riches in the crony capitalist Judea, but he seems to never condemn riches in the Gospel accounts en toto, while he's in Galilee, which was more free market. And if you want a more thorough explanation of that, purchase The Makers vs. The Takers by Jerry Bowyer. That was it for this week's episode and the conclusion of this two-part series. If you enjoyed these two episodes and would like me to extend this into more parts, more than just two episodes, looking at other passages of scripture that put riches in either a positive or a negative light, let me know, because I would love to do that if that's what you all want. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. More than silver or precious pure gold. Your law is sweet and it satisfies my soul. It revives me and satisfies me. Your law is sweet, oh, you satisfy my soul.